This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 20. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreau. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're on session number 20 today, getting closer to 25. Brought to you by our friends over at Gearslets.com. Welcome back. All right. Going to diverge a little bit from the discussion of recording today. I want to just bring up this devastation in Nepal, this earthquake that has happened. The death toll could reach 10,000, according to The Guardian online. My friends, that is a hell of a lot of people and a hell of a lot of devastation. So many people, of course, want to help. And I think the uh, the trick there is finding the right place to help because, of course, when these tragedies come up, there's a lot of scams out there to take people's money and then money gets diverted and not sent to where it needs to go to help. So I did a little search and on PRI, which is Public Radio International, PRI.org, I have come up with an article, came out recently, How to Help Nepal, Seven Vetted Charities Doing Relief Work Following the Earthquake. So if you want to help, I've included a link to this article and leave it up to you. I'm not going to make a suggestion as to which one. I'm going to leave that in your hands. And there's a list, AmeriCares, CARE, Catholic Relief Services, Direct Relief, Global Giving, International Relief Teams, Operation USA, Save the Children, Save a Foundation, and World Help. And then they mention a couple others. They mention Oxfam and UNICEF. If you are interested in helping out, please head on over to the link I've included there on the page. Yeah, hard to, hard to transition out of that. Such devastation there. And uh, we, of course, in the Bay Area are no strangers to earthquakes. I was in the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989. And let me tell you, that scared the shit out of me. And I will never forget that. So... All right. On to our show today. I reached out at some point to everybody on Facebook and I said, hey, I'm looking for other recording engineers to interview people in the trenches and got a lot of suggestions and many of which I've been chasing down leads on and a couple I've I've had some success with. Don Gunn was brought to my attention. I didn't know Don and of course now I do. But uh, Don and I had a great conversation and he's on the show today. Don's based up in Seattle and he's one of those guys that Like he flies under the radar completely, but he seems to work with some fantastic people and some high profile people too at that. He's worked with Soundgarden. He's worked with Peter Frampton. Peter Frampton. Yeah, we talk about that in the interview. He's worked with KMFDM. He's worked with Death Cab for Cutie. He seems to be tied into the Death Cab for Cutie camp. He's also worked with Trey Gunn. No relation, but same spelling, G-U-N-N. Anyways, let's get over to our interview with Mr. Don Gunn in Seattle here on Working Class Audio. Hey there. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thank you very much. I see your studio there behind you. Uh, yeah, it's a one room. Uh, you have a command eight. I have a command eight because it still works with Pro Tools 11. <laughs> oh, that's good to know. Yeah, it works great with 11. It's just one room. Wow. It's a nice room, though. But it's a it's a cool space, and I can track drums in here. And I built it with a couple friends who are contractors. Uh huh. And three of us spent about two weeks doing all the construction, floated the floor, doubled all the windows and walls. So it's it's really well isolated. Uh, neighbors don't hate me. My wife doesn't hate me. <laughs> Air conditioning. Um, I have a unit to pop in a window in the summer, but luckily in Seattle we need it like two days a year. 
Um, and in the winter, I've got a ceramic heater that regulates itself and does really well. You know, in a perfect world, I would double the space and go out more into the backyard and have AC and everything, but huh. not a perfect world. Well, before we get into it, I mean, since we're on the topic, let's let's talk about the economics of of this place. You work sure. out of other studios, but obviously you found the need to build a, a place behind your house. Do you own your house? Yeah, we do own the house. That was one of the conditions when we bought seven years ago. Because at that time, I was helping run a studio that my friend Jason from Death Cab owned. So I was managing it. He owned it. And we were looking to buy our first house. And there was a building next to his studio that I could take over and turn into my place so that I would be in really close proximity to managing his room. Because when he was out on the road, it was just a commercial room. So we'd have everybody come in and, and use it. But we're looking to buy a house. And that space for me was going to be another 2300 bucks a month in rent and plus a first mortgage. <laughs> that wasn't real enticing at that point. It was like, oh, we're going to have two mortgages essentially. So we, we decided to look for a place where we could have a separate from the house building and I could build my own little room. Yes, I do still work out of a lot of studios quite often, more for tracking, just because there's nothing that replaces a big room. And if I'm working with a band and we want to track three or four people at once, it can be done here, but boy, is it cozy. <laughs> I'm sure it is, yeah. But I've, I've had some sessions in here with five people playing at once and live amps plus drums, and there's no bleed. It's really great. Uh, may I ask, uh, what, what kind of money did you sink into this? Well, the... the structure was here because right. when the house was built, this was the garage. Oh, um, okay. Well, that's a good start. There was already a slab. One of the previous owners had framed it in and taken out the garage door. So it was already sort of a, a standalone box. There were two doors coming in. I took one of those out, did two layers of quiet rock on the walls, quiet rock on the ceiling, doubled doors, doubled windows, floated floor. So it was about 10 grand in materials and labor. Now, Doing a lot of labor myself certainly helped, but I also paid my friends who were contractors. All the treatment in here I built myself. I've talked with a couple of acousticians and had one come in and shoot the room and you know, tried to make it as workable as possible. And stuff translates out of here exactly how I want it to. That's all you could ask for, really. Yeah, exactly. I trust this room more than I trust most of the control rooms I work in. Yeah. Just because I know this space so well. And it looks like you have some skylights. There are two skylights in here and three windows. So I can actually tell what time of day it is. <laughs> Bonus. Um, which I love. And, and a couple of the rooms that I work in do the majority of my tracking in, both have windows in the control rooms. And I absolutely love that, just for my psyche, <laughs> yeah. knowing what's going on outside and that I'm not just in a cave. You know, you pull 14, 15-hour days, I need to know that there's a world out there. Do you have a day job? No, this is it. And it's been it for over 10 years. And prior to that, I was doing some freelance web graphic design while also engineering and prior to that, had a short stint in an actual web development company here in Seattle. That's what actually brought me to town. My bandmate from high school had moved out here, was doing web design. I needed a change. I was running a studio in Connecticut and had been doing that 
since right out of high school and mm. I needed to do something else and get into a different environment. Connecticut not being the hotbed of music activity uh, or originality. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Shocking. I know. I have no idea. It's Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How many bands can you name out of Connecticut? Uh, not any at this moment. Exactly. So it, it seemed like it was it was the right time and a good opportunity to come out here, hopefully make music again, but also start to see what the, the scene out here was like. And it completely was worth it. It was Sylvia Massey who said, you know, when you move to any place, it generally takes a couple years to kind of get your bearings and get up and running. Yeah. What was your experience? Uh, it was absolutely that. You know, I was coming from this small studio in Hartford, Connecticut, which was fine. And for me, it was a, I never interned. I never assisted. I jumped into this situation because it was the studio where my band had recorded our record when I was in high school. And mm -hmm. I knew the owner at that point. And when their engineer left, I called him and I said, you should give me that job. <laughs> and he did. So I kind of just jumped into it super head first. But, you know, it was a small enough facility. We were still on tape at that point that I was able to really kind of start to hone some semblance of skills in a situation that wasn't like, you know, being tossed into the power station or something in New York where I would have died. <laughs> it, or I would have been scrubbing toilets for a year and a half. And uh, maybe I missed out on something by not doing that kind of interning or assisting. But, I, you know, I just kind of had to figure it out. And moving out here, it was a good thing that I had a day job at the outset because mm -hmm. I didn't have to just land on my feet and figure out how the scene in this town works. Then the dot-com crash happened and all the web design companies went bye-bye, including the one I was at. And that was great because then I was ready to try and figure it out and make it work. Um, so I had started getting in touch with a couple of the studios in town and, and meeting some other engineers and meeting some studio owners. And the scene here is there, there are a lot of studios, but everybody kind of knows each other and everybody is on really good terms. There's competition because everybody's trying to do the gigs, but it's not a cutthroat kind of competition. Mm -hmm. And it's a really supportive competition. And I'll regularly have lunch or just, you know, be texting with a bunch of the other engineers talking about stuff. And we all nerd out about gear and we talk about sessions. And it's, it's a very supportive environment for people like us. And it took a couple years just to sort of get into that whole role, but it wasn't it wasn't real difficult. And I think part of it's just everybody should be nice to each other. <laughs> Knowing what you know now, what would you do different to speed that getting up to speed process? And what like so if you were telling somebody if you, if I said, "Hey, I'm going to move to Seattle," what should I yep. do? It, it's it's a very self starting kind of town. So I probably would have gone out to clubs and just started hitting the pavement, talking to bands and saying, you guys are great. Let's, we're going to go record. As it was, I wound up meeting people through a band I had joined and just started saying, I should record you. But that was just because I was in a band situation. But I, yeah, I think just being a little more proactive about getting out there and finding the people 
that I would like to record. Mm. Um, that would have sped up the process. Because so many of the studios, I mean, almost every studio in town now, some of them have some assistance, but nobody's really got an on-call staff situation like the old days where there were always the house guys. So it's, you need a room, you call them up, you make an, a, make a, an appointment, make a schedule when you need to be there and for how many days, and you go do it. And sometimes I'll wind up with an assistant for half the first day helping the setup just because that's handy when you're loading in a, a full band or whatever. But I'll, you know, generally I'm running sessions on my own, no assistant, and it's fine. I'm used to that. And I, I'm sometimes bad with assistance because I don't know what to tell them what to do. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm so used to doing it all myself that to tell somebody what I need them to do takes longer than for me to just go do it. I hear that. But a great assistant is invaluable also. Um, so when I do have them and they're good, I love them. So it's interesting. You, you moved there and you, you got up and running. I was looking at your at some of the records you've worked on and, and a, a few stood out. Um, well, you worked with Peter Frampton. Yep. And you've worked with uh, Death Cab for Cutie. Yep. And you've, God, what was the other one that I saw in there that really caught my, oh, Trey Gunn, mm-hmm. which I don't know if that was. No relation. No, no, no. no. <laughs> well, yeah, no relation to you. I, you're right, of course. But also, uh, was that in the context of any association with King Crimson? Um, no, actually, those were completely unrelated. The My Trey, I met, I think somebody had passed my name along to him because he needed some logic help. And and I'm kind of equally facile between logic and Pro Tools and use them both interchangeably a lot of times. So I wound up helping him out with some logic stuff and hit it off and then wound up doing some a bunch of mixing for him, mixed one record a couple of years ago and did some kind of extra mixing on another record. And then the Crimson thing came about through Bill Rieflin, who I've known for almost 13, 14 years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty soon after I moved to Seattle, Bill and I kind of hooked up and, and we just completely hit it off and have had a fantastic working and personal relationship since then. So we do a, lo- a number of projects a year together and Bill's known Fripp forever and Bill and I worked with Fripp on a Humans single. Humans is a band that Bill has with Toya Wilcox, who's Robert Fripp's wife. And I've co-produced two Humans records mixed all three, recorded two, and then we did the single that Robert played on. So yeah, that's all kind of this weird circle of everybody knows everybody. And when that happens and you get along, obviously you continue to get the calls. Yeah. You know, it's like the Death Cab thing. I knew Jason McGurr, the drummer, before I knew the band and through him met the rest of the band and just knew them as friends and helped do some, again, logic work when they were starting to try and move from running radar as their playback rig on stage to laptops. And this was like early MacBook Pro time. And there were issues with hard drives jiggling with the bass bins next to them. And so we did a bunch of like tech stuff first. And then that turned into, hey, can you mix this MTV broadcast for us for a MTVU special, which turned into mix this VH1 special in surround and then a DVD in surround. And then it kind of kept going, but they're still friends first. And it's kind of how a lot of my 
musical relationships have wound up becoming. How did some of those musical relationships get started? Like, let's start with the Death Cab thing. I think that's the musical relationship with them began when Jason had asked me to help manage his studio. So he decided he was going to build this room here in town, asked me to manage it, which, you know, entailed booking, keeping maintenance at a, a as consistently high a level as possible. And if it was stuff I could fix, great. If I needed to call in a tech, it would be taken care of. Just leave him as much out of it as possible so that he could go do band things. And and I think through that, he and like Chris Walla, who at that time was still producing all their stuff, had a had enough confidence in me that when some of these things came about, like if they were on the road and this broadcast needed to be mixed and they didn't want to leave it up to the mercy of the network or any random engineer who may not even know the material, they could call me and say, can you do this and know it would get done, get done timely and well. Hmm. Um, so that's, and, and I think like any of those things, if you don't screw up, hopefully it'll come back to you. Yeah. Uh, and I try not to screw up. But what about, uh, you know, Peter Frampton? Uh, that came about through Matt Cameron, drummer of Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. When I was working at Two Sticks, Jason's studio, Matt had called Jason about doing a little solo project, a, a trio kind of jazz fusion thing, just piano, keys, bass, and and Matt. Um, and, and at the same time, some of Matt's own solo writing. So we did every other day would be the trio and the in-between days would be just me and Matt working on his solo stuff. And at that point, I hadn't met Matt. I think that was the first time I'd met him. Uh, but he and I hit it off real well and did this record and did a bunch of, of his solo work. And he got called by Frampton to do Frampton's last studio record. I guess Frampton had told Matt that uh, Chris Kimsey, who was producing the record, and he were looking for engineers to do it. And Matt threw my name in the ring and which was incredible. Uh, so I got a phone call from Frampton on a Saturday morning <laughs> saying, hi, let's talk. And then uh, Chris Kimsey called me. He wanted to talk and he said, OK, I think this sounds like it's going to work. So never met in person. They flew me to Ohio to Peter's studio in, in Cincinnati. And we had about a month and a half of tracking. Matt played on half the record in the first round of tracking. So we did that for about a week and a half. Matt played for a week. I st stayed around for a few more days to do some editing, and, and we started working on guitar stuff. Uh, and then I went back a couple weeks later, and we did another month straight through. And that was both at Peter's studio, which was a home studio. And I used giant air quotes around that because he had a 48-channel 4K SSL. The control room had... 14-foot ceilings, big stone and wood room for tracking. It was really gorgeous. <laughs> and it was so much more than a home studio. Nice experience. Uh, yeah, it was a fantastic experience. Then we, we went down to Nashville, to Blackbird, for two days of tracking and tracked the Funk Brothers on a tune. I mean, it was insane. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we were in, in Studio D there, which is the big uh, API legacy room, 96-channel API. Mm -hmm. It was great. It was like a dream. Wow. And we had a ball. We had a ball doing it. Everybody spoke in different accents every day we came into the studio. You know, it, was just, <laughs> it was fun. It was what making a record should be. And everybody worked really hard. Uh, but while working really hard, we all enjoyed ourselves. You've had some really enjoyable 
times and some good successes there without, I mean, you're not like, you're not a, uh, you're not a Chris Lord algae. You're not, you're not like this household name. Nope. Yet you're doing this, some great work. It sounds like a lot of uh, luck. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, but also what would you attribute some of these, uh, these successes to is well, I'm going to call them successes because to me, like, as you're telling me the story, it, I think, yeah, there's, there's a nice little victory there and there's another one there. And what would you, what would I, you attribute it all to? I think any job where you can get paid is a success. <laughs> true, true. But you're dealing with some high profile people too. Yeah. Um, well, if, if luck is when preparation meets opportunity, I think that's it. And I've, I've had, I've been prepared just by doing it and being in the trenches long enough that when the opportunity comes around, I'll jump at it. And I think I'm good on my feet and I'm really good at not letting anybody know that something's wrong. Uh, I just like, I, I love what I do. And I think maybe that comes across in a session as, you know, being competent. I don't know beyond that. I, th- I think I'm fun to work with, hopefully. And also um, some of these relationships that you've cultivated over the years, it sounds like have played a, a, a pretty big part in it. My, my entire career has been based on relationships. Uh-huh. You know, I'm, I'm not, I have no idea how to advertise my services. I'm terrible. I'm so shitty at selling myself. Really bad because <clears throat> this is my job. This is what I do. And I hope at this point I'm pretty good at it, but I'm also, I'm, I'm my own worst critic and, and I can't listen back to stuff I've done because to me, I hear the flaws and I know I hear what I want to do differently and better. And I want every project and every next record to be better, which doesn't mean I think that everything I've done has been super crap because Mm -hmm. that wouldn't be fair to the people I've worked with. But for me, it's it's constantly a state of evolving and learning and doing new stuff and studying what other people are doing all the time. And, you know, I still devour sound on sound and tape op every month, you know, read forums. And my my Twitter feed is mostly other engineers and, and audio developers and nerds like me. And I just like talking to these people about stuff. Yeah. And it, it saves my wife from having to have me talk to her about it. <laughs> she gets the glazed over look of, oh, here comes the gear talk. Right. Um, Your wife works? Yeah, she's a, a high school librarian. So we're both in, in really lucrative careers. <laughs> <laughs> so that tells me that, am I wrong in saying, is the cost of living in Seattle not astronomical? Um, it's not inexpensive, Um, it's not like it would be in the middle of the country or something. Um, or, or if we were, you know, we're in Seattle proper, it's much more expensive than if we were 30 miles out, um, heading east towards the mountains or something, but it's not like San Francisco or New York. Yeah. Tell me about San Francisco. Ugh. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it's, it's kind of a good balance between a, a place with a ton of resources, decent cost of living, and sort of and, and a super great quality of life. We love it here. Neither of us are from here. I've been here for 16 years now, and she's been here for 18 years. And every time we go somewhere and we leave, we're always happy to come home. Yeah. And I've never had that in any other place I've lived. That's a good feeling to have. 
Let's talk about the nuts and bolts of how you operate. Let's talk gear a little bit. Philosophically, are you when you mix? Are you what's your style? Hybrid, in the box, out of the box? Um, I do a lot of my mixing here at my place, and it's it's a hybrid situation. Uh, I've got a Burl summing mixer and kind of patch in a bunch of outboard compression. I have no problem doing anything in the box if that's what it calls for. If I'm doing, like I just did this uh, Lindsey Sterling DVD for PBS and as a separate standalone DVD, and that was a stereo and surround mix that had to get turned around Christmas week delivered by New Year's Day. And it came to me very late. That was entirely in the box because I knew there were going to be a number of recalls for surround, I don't have processing for surround, like six channels of something to do stereo or stare, like uh, a surround version of a mix bus compressor, let's say. I don't have it. And so I kept that completely in the box and sounded fine. Um, to me, my if I have monitors I trust, I'm fine. I'll mix in the box. I'll mix out of the box. I'll mix on a console. If I can hear and know what I'm hearing and trust what I'm hearing, the the rest of the gear is kind of irrelevant. There are a lot of plugins I love. There's a lot of hardware I love, but that's none of it is going to hold me back from doing what I need to do if I can hear what I'm supposed to hear. So is your, your room there at home is set up for surround? It can be, yeah. I've got extra speakers that I'll put up when that... I don't need to keep it all. It kind of screws with my flow through the room. <laughs> gotcha. And if I'm if I'm working with other people and we're tr- cutting vocals or something in here, just mean there's speaker stands sitting behind me uh, for the rears, and it's just that's the drawback of the single room situation. Uh, right. So th- that stuff comes down when I'm when I'm not doing surround. How much surround work do you get? One project a year these days, I think. And, and you know that could be because I I'm not actively pursuing it. And maybe if I did, I would get more. It's fun. I love doing it. But I also like working with bands and tracking and having people around some, mm. too. And the, the surround stuff tends to be much more, I get delivered stuff. It's to be mixed and mixed usually pretty quickly. So it's it's fine. And it's a great exercise. And I really like doing it. I'm sad that there isn't, beyond video or broadcast, a bigger market for it. Um, I, wish there, I wish there was an online... Well, I, there is, but I wish there were a better online downloadable resource for surround mixes and that people actually sat and listened to surround mixes because that's kind of the only way you can really enjoy it. It's not wallpaper music where you can just put it on and be in the kitchen doing dishes while it's playing in the living room. You kind of have to sit and experience it in surround. Yeah. And people don't, that's not how people listen to music these days, it seems. What's, what's the ecosystem of Seattle's music and recording scene like with regards to studio rates? What engineers charge? What are the economics of it? Tell me about that. Um, rates in this town haven't changed much in 15, 16 years, maybe longer. I mean, since I've been here, the rates have been pretty flat and rooms go anywhere like 350 to nine a day and nine's on the high side there are only a couple of rooms in town that can can pull that kind of day rate averages between four and six hundred okay. uh, and that's that's ro- generally room sometimes with an assistant sometimes without 
and then engineers charge what they can get. If I'm taking a project somewhere else for tracking, I'll usually just do a flat day rate Mm -hmm. for myself that would be less than my day rate working here where we're also not paying for another room. Wait, so your your day rate tracking in another room is less? Uh, Yeah, I'll usually charge less because... I don't understand. Many times those bands aren't label bands and they're paying for that room on their own too, Mm. or they've kickstarted it. So I get the economics of them having to pay for a four or $500 a day room. And we want to be there for a week and a half or so. And I would rather be able to work with them there at a room that I know and love than price myself out of contention and not be able to work with them at all, lose the money, lose the gig. Um, To me, it's worth it to cut my rate a little bit to get the job, do the job. And I know that we're going to come back probably to my place and mix. Do you you get an agreement to do that or do you just? Yeah. No, this is all set up up front. um, And I have a good enough relationship with a number of the rooms that if they can be a little flexible on their rate too, if we're going to, especially if we're going to do more than like two days. You know, I understand if we're asking them to hold, let's say a weekend, because everybody else has day jobs, don't change your day rate for me. <laughs> I understand, but we only need these two days. But if we're going to go in for two weeks, if we can work on a rate that, you know, still works for them, but helps the band out a little bit, mm-hmm. and I can work whatever rate we need to do so I can do the job for them and I'm not losing my shirt. I'll also tell them that, look, I'm going to cut my rate, but we're not going to run 18 hours a day. We'll go 12 hours, maybe 13 or 14 if we're still steaming along at midnight, but I'm not going to pull 18 hours and and watch what essentially becomes a a minimum wage hourly uh, happen to me. Yeah. Um, Because nobody's going to be doing good work at that point either. No, I would agree. that's a long day. It's a long day for anybody. And if you're trying to do good work, create good art, and have any kind of objectivity at the end of the day, it's just, it's not good. And when you when you mix, as far as that rate is concerned, are you uh, by the song or by the project or by the hour? How does that work? Yes. <laughs> I, I've done all of them. And what works best for you? For me, hourly. I prefer that. Um, I like a good hourly rate. I like an hourly rate that is fair to me and feels like it justifies my experience and what I've put into it to this point, but also doesn't feel just ridiculously big headed about what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, But it makes it worthwhile. But I also understand the economics of it. And that if, you know, a band comes to me with 14 songs, what can we do so that Let's do it on a per song basis that makes it worthwhile to them, makes it worthwhile to me, but I'm also going to stipulate we're not going to do 15 revisions per song. That just won't happen. We'll do maximum of two, you know, something like that. If I were mixing on a console and it required full recall every time, nope. (laughs) We're going to have the mix and I'll probably want the band there so that we make the decision on every song, print it, move on. Yeah. Um, because the, then the economics of it are just, that's ridiculous when recall takes two hours for each song to set it back up. Um, not to even talk about taking the notes for each mix and it's, it's, yeah, it's not, uh, it's not economically feasible for a lot of bands. Mm-hmm. That that's a, that's a common thing across the board. I think for a lot of us. Yeah. 
Do you have kids? Nope. Okay. We have a dog and a cat, dog and, and a cat. Uh, no, no kids planned. Okay. That obviously puts you in a bracket and allows you to make certain, you know, a, a particular bracket of recording engineer that allows you some flexibility and some decision making that otherwise someone like me who does have kids has a different set of parameters to work around. Yeah, and and we decided a number of years ago, we've been married for 10 years, we've been together for 14 Um Decided pretty early on and, and going into our relationship, even before getting married, my wife knew what I did and the kind of sometimes crazy schedule that it entails. And if I don't come home until 2 a.m., it's not because I'm out prowling the town. I'm working. <laughs> and um, But and her schedule's such that, you know, we're up at 530 in the morning and she's out of the house by 630. So it's not really conducive to a stable family life. A lot of things would have to change if we wanted children and wanted to provide some semblance of a a good home life for them. And we're kind of both selfish with our time and, and our freedom. And we know that. And we knew that when making that decision. We we're both really on the same page. We have a number of friends who have young kids. We love to go visit them. And we like to come home to our dog and cat too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I can tell you, kids are great, but they're not for everybody. And yeah, yeah, it's it's good to. I think it's great when you can acknowledge up front and make that decision, as opposed to, you know, some people who just, hey, we got to have kids, and later and, they realize how selfish with their time they wanted to be. Yep. And and one of us wasn't going. We need to do this. We need to have children, or else we're we're going to regret our life later on. We were both kind of both ridden these same waves of, should we? Yeah, maybe. Nope. Yeah, maybe. Nope. <laughs> and yeah. and at some point, I was around the time I hit 40, kind of went, yeah, we're probably not going to do this. Mm-hmm. We're, we're completely fine with the decision. That allows you to go and disappear with Peter Frampton for a month. For a month, exactly. Which then is- we just have to worry about dog care or whatever. And we've got neighbors who can come over and let the dog out if we need to. Well, so then let's talk a little bit about your approach or philosophy with regards to making a living with audio, your philosophical point of view as far as like gear lust and money. And are you a pretty disciplined financial guy or are you like many engineers who are always scratching their heads going, hmm, how can I justify buying this piece of gear? Um, it's a good thing I'm married. I like that. <laughs> She's far more level-headed when it comes to the the economics of this relationship. This is my business and I'm a I've got a business license, I pay taxes quarterly. You know, it's not it's fully legitimate. So, we have a good accountant for our yearly taxes who can take all of our crazy quarterly stuff and make sense of it. So, she keeps me in check a bit more with the gear lust and gear constant desires of buying. And we, we, for a while tried the, if I buy something, I have to sell something. And that works a lot of times. Like I enjoy getting gear and trying it out for three months or six months or a year or whatever. And then I want to try something else. And and if I feel like I can get rid of it and it doesn't completely screw up my sort of routine of mixing or tracking or something's not going to come back for a recall and I suddenly have lost 
certain piece of gear, uh, yeah, I'll get rid of it and I'll try something else. I like that. I like trying stuff out. Um, I also have a couple of really good pro audio dealers here in town who will let me take something for a weekend or a week or whatever and try it out before buying it. And that's awesome. And cultivating that kind of relationship with a pro audio dealer, I think, is invaluable. Because they understand that you can't just walk into a showroom or online or whatever and go, I think that might work for me without ever trying it. And I'm sure for them, from a bookkeeping standpoint, it's far better to let somebody take it for a couple of days, try it out, decide they do or don't want it, than charging it, doing a refund, etc. So I, I'm trying to come to peace with <laughs> feeling like I have enough gear that I can really do everything I need to do right now and not have to have something else or I just can't make a record or something. Cause that's, you know, that's just a crutch. I can totally work with what I have. <laughs> it's too bad. Uh, they don't have Netflix for pro audio gear. That'd be awesome. You pay a, a, a yearly fee or monthly fee and they just send out a p- one piece of gear at a time. Yeah. And you don't get another one until you send it back. Yeah. Hmm. 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 Might have something there. There. There's a business <laughs> idea for the listeners. Oh, I'm not going to do that. Sorry. <laughs> that's that's what John McBride at, at Blackbird should do. Exactly. He's already got the warehouse set up. That's for right. It. If yeah, Rolf, if you're listening <laughs> at Blackbird Rentals, then by all means, try it. Uh, Steal the idea. There was another part of that question, and I think I got I derailed you. I'm curious just about like, well, do you consider yourself a good business person? Um. I think I'm a decent business person. What are your weaknesses on business in, in, with regards to, to our, our, our business? I, I would be better a better business person if I just took like two years and didn't buy any gear and all the money went straight into savings or whatever. Um, but I, part of what I love about what I do is the gear and and it's it's enjoyable to me. It's part of what I really enjoy about what I do. And maybe that's materialistic, but the gear is fun. <laughs> no, but we could do a t-shirt. I would be a better business person if... <laughs> or maybe... <laughs> Yeah. I stopped buying compressors. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like a 12-step program. It totally is. And I would fail. Hi, my name is Don. I have a compress- compressor addiction. <laughs> I have an outboard gear addiction. Hi, yeah. Don. And microphone addiction. And It's fun. That's the problem is the gear is fun. Yeah. I, it's a lot of fun. And that's what I love about going to work in another room, too, is I hope they've got something I've never used before because I want to try it. And... Doesn't make me want to buy it, but it's really cool trying out something on a session that I haven't used before. And how can I make it work for me in that particular instance? Mm-hmm. And as far as uh, you said, you're terrible at selling yourself. Yes, I'm very bad at it. So, in lieu of marketing, do you do you try to build the relationships? Yeah, because every job that's ever come to me has been via word of mouth. So, relationships are everything. Relationships um, are marketing. They, yeah, I guess that would be if I had to put a name on it. My marketing is is being nice to people and and working with people and hopefully having them enjoy the process. Mm-hmm. 
Um, my, my two rules that I tell a band when I work with them for the first time, we get in the studio and I say, all right, I got to hear that. It's got two rules. One, have fun. Two, don't be an asshole. And if everybody abides by that, we have a great time. <laughs> and I've been super lucky that there have been probably fewer people that I can count on one hand that have really been trying and problematic in the studio. Um, cause you know, it's music. It better be fun. What? Even if you're singing. Singing about the worst heartbreak or, you know, experience you've ever had, fine, capture that emotion, but it's still, you're making music, so let's have fun with it. Well, how do you deal with those nutty personalities? Um, go get a burrito, make <laughs> coffee, you know, take a break. Yeah. A lot of times it's just the stress of being in the studio and long hours, and it's it's hard. I mean, everybody wants to do a good job, and... You know, musicians, engineers, whatever, we're all, we're emotional people. We're dealing in this intangible thing called music that is emotive. And so you you get caught up in that and it can freak people out. And, and you know, half of our, more than half of our job as an engineer or a producer is to be the psychologist in the room and diffuse those situations and, you know, bring, bring the focus back. Are you a good referee? Is it easy for you to oh, yeah. bring, bring the temperature down in the, yep. in the studio? Um, I'll jump right in, but I'm also, I'm not a, a voice raiser. I'm not a yeller. Um, I, comedy is so much more fun to try and diffuse the situation with. I think again, we're just we're trying to make music. So mm -hmm. it's pretty easy. It's been pretty easy to swing people back into the where the focus needs to be. Talk them off the ledge. Yeah. What have been some valuable mistakes that you've made that you really can look back and reflect on and say, wow, I really, I learned a lot from this. You know, deleting three or four songs from a project off of a hard drive without having a backup. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, a bummer. Um, How did yeah. you recover from that? Uh, started over on those three or four songs and just didn't charge them for the the redo. Ah, uh, so it's a it's an expensive mistake, but you don't forget about the backups after that. No, <laughs> not at all. Yeah, I mean that's in the in the tape days. It was the take the tracks out of record or whatever and going to punch the vocal track, but all the drums are still armed, and now you got a nice big hole in the middle of the drum track. <sighs> Oh. You know, that kind of stuff. Those are mistakes you don't forget too easily. Uh, and you don't make them again. <laughs> uh, you make those mistakes once. What other mistakes do you got? Man, I feel like I make a mistake on every session and, and try and mask it <laughs> without anybody else <laughs> knowing. Uh, you know, there's dumb little stuff like arm the wrong track in Pro Tools or whatever. But what about, what about uh, personal mistakes or personality mistakes or business mistakes? Personality mistakes, uh, speaking up at the wrong time in the studio, interjecting when two people are talking about something that on the surface doesn't appear as important to you as it does to them and kind of stepping in the middle of that conversation. And that, that's that's about being able to read the room and read the situation. And, and that comes just from experience, I think, really being able to take a minute and, and listen before you say something. Other mistakes that I haven't done but have witnessed are assistants that don't know when to shut up. <laughs> and anytime I've had assistants who have who I've worked with many times, I've only worked with them many times because they kind of know 
where they need their place is. And everybody, everybody has a place. And if I'm just the engineer and I'm not the producer on a project, I don't make the producer calls. If I'm producing and engineering, I can make more calls, but I still have to know when it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I think, you know, knowing when and when not to say something. And I've certainly made mistakes doing that. And that feels shitty for a little bit and kind of brings the temperature in the room way down. <laughs> Gets super cold in the control room for a while. But, you know, we're human. We make mistakes. And hopefully none of us are making big enough mistakes to uh, just take the entire project off the rails. And we're making a record. We're not solving world peace problems. <laughs> we're not doing surgery here. We're not doing surgery. And, you know, I think keeping everything in perspective is a is a good way to go through a project, knowing, yes, it's very important. It's the most important thing happening to the artist right now. Um, but don't forget to be human about it. So what's your advice to others with regards to staying involved, staying recording and, and doing doing what we love to do like what's what's the strategy do it all the time uh and if you've got a down day down week down month (laughs) don't panic start looking for other avenues of things to do that that still are music and, and musical and involved or recording involved you know i've recorded books on tape and i've done you know a number of these dvd projects I'll do anything that's audio related. I've done a bunch of work for video games. I've done sound design. I've done sort of remixes for video game music that then still went into the game. Um, to me, it's all it's all sound. It's all interesting and fun. And if you feel like you've got sort of your niche that you really like, you really like power pop and punk music, or you really like jazz, well, go do something else. Go f- if all you do is is whatever, I don't know, emo indie bands, go find a jazz trio to record, you know, go to a coffee house gig and tell them you'll record a three song demo for them for 400 bucks. Do something else that takes you out of your comfort zone um, and, and challenges you to try something you don't think you'd like because you might. And for me, I'll do anything. I not in a whorish way, but I'll do anything because it's fun and a challenge and interesting. And if I've been mixing a rock record for two weeks, I need a break. I want to do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I don't have a gig for two weeks or something, I'm panicking. <laughs> so I'm trying to find something else to do. When you're your own boss and you're in charge of your own paycheck, having an empty calendar is terrifying. You know, in the 10 plus years, this is all I've been doing. I, without the the sort of safety net of another day job, I've been really lucky that the downtimes have been few and far between. There was a couple years ago, 2012 or 2013, January, February, like nothing on the books. And... I thought I was never going to work again. The year after that, those same months, I didn't have a day off. So, you know, people have asked me, are there trends through the year that I can look at sort of year to year and know, okay, my June will be slow. Every time I try and do that, the next year, it completely turns it on its head. So just, I think just hustling and maintaining relationships, talking to other people, doing what you do and seeing what they're schedules and work is like and is it a common thing sort of in a 
in a scene, you know, like here in Seattle, is everybody suddenly not working? Is it just me? Have I fucked up somehow? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You know, we're anytime things get slow, I think any of us get sort of filled with some self doubt of, oh shit, what, what have I done? Or where'd the gigs go? And it's, it's, that's a hard thing to deal with. So do you, I mean, do you take active steps to prevent those dropouts in the calendar? Um, yeah, if I look at my schedule and I see, okay, I've got some holes here and here and here, I'll start getting in touch with people that I haven't spoken to in a while and just see, and it it may not just be artists, but producers, management, not my management, I don't have management. So, but management of artists that I've worked with and just say, Hey, what's, what's your schedule looking like? Do you have anything coming up? I've got some time open. Are there any new projects, any bands, whatever? And just see, just if nothing else, it puts my name out there again, if we haven't talked in a while. And, you know, hopefully that drums up some additional business. Let me ask you this. I don't know. This popped into my head because I haven't done it in such a long time. I haven't printed up business cards in ages. (laughs) Do you have business cards? And do you think that's even relevant? It, that's funny. I have business cards. Luckily, I can I can parlay my former experience doing graphic design, so I can make my own business cards and make my own website and do that kind of thing. But I always forget to carry them with me, so I never have them in my wallet or something. I don't remember the last time I actually gave one out. I did a talk a couple months ago here in town with John Ulrig from Shiny Box Microphones. Uh, and Rachel from RFI Mastering, we did a little panel discussion thing, and we were told, bring business cards. So I brought a whole stack of business cards. Nope, didn't give one out. So maybe they're handy. I'm glad I have them. I think I bought 500, so I'll have them for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, like some bands with their CDs they print up. Right, exactly. <laughs> hey, I still love CDs. <laughs> if I were in a band, I'd probably make them because I just like shiny things and physical things. I'll tell you, the most impressive business card from an audio engineer I've ever received was Steve Albini's, and it was uh-huh. stainless steel. Nice. And I, I, I still have it. <laughs> his his card is the only card I still have. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I don't have the wherewithal to, to get that fancy with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you work on any, as far as like, Back to the marketing questions, Facebook, Twitter, do you do you put any attention into it? Um, I don't have a Facebook account. I have no interest in it. Um, I have a Twitter account that I love. I, I love hanging out on Twitter. For me, Twitter is like the best. When I'm mixing, I love distractions. You know, it's so easy with everything being on the computer these days that you wind up, you're looking at your mix more than listening to your mix. Mm-hmm. And for me... I love running a playback and then I hop over on Twitter and I'm reading through my feed and I'm hearing the mix just fine. But I'm also hearing the things that poke out and and call attention to themselves because I'm not 100% focused on just sitting there looking at the screen. I'll also turn the display off a lot uh, and just listen. I'm not looking at anything anymore. Um, but I find that like the little distraction of just sitting there and hanging out on Twitter and listening gives me the the ability to focus on the things that need attention more like cuz they make themselves more known to me um but as far as marketing on Twitter no <laughs> again it's like a bunch of audio nerds hanging out for me that's my Twitter feed yeah um and we're all we're all kind of in the same boat um 
it, it, to me, it would feel, again, this is just my being so uncomfortable with uh, marketing myself. If I were just hopping on Twitter going, hey, I've got dates open. Who wants to make a record? <laughs> that, that would just be so skeevy. Yeah, and even my website, <laughs> which I kind of like, but I'm so shit at updating it. My my sort of news bloggy thing, it's like once a year, I remember to go on there and update it. And then I have to go back through invoices and go, shit, what did I do this year? Or, or look at all the CDs I've gotten. And I'm so bad. <laughs> I'm really bad. No judgment here, man. <laughs> and part of it is just, I ha I've been lucky enough. I haven't had enough time to do it. Mm. Like just the, the, the sitting down, I, I'll sometimes have some crappy insomnia. So a lot of times that's when I'll do it is I'll wake up in the middle of the night at one or 2 AM and not be able to fall back to sleep. And I'll just sit down with my laptop and update my website finally. Hey, if you got downtime, put it to good use. Yeah. All right, let me ask you some geeky questions. Some Yay. some some gear geeky questions that I don't normally ask. You're pro, you have a Pro Tools setup? Yeah, I'm running Pro Tools HD and Logic and I'm actually running Pro Tools HD software but not hardware. <laughs> <laughs> so you've come across an HD license? No, I had a, a 16 IO uh, and an uh, HD native card because I'm in a one room studio here. A fan in the HD was making me nuts in the HD IO. So tried a Symphony. That fan was making me crazy too. I can't have fans in here really. Like my Mac Pro is the loudest thing in the room, and that's it's quiet. Hard drives are usually louder than the computer, but <clears throat> even that sort of like. On the edge. Do you have a trash can or a tower? No, I got a six, seven-year-old eight-core tower. I'd love a trash can, but wee cha-ching. <laughs> so I have a I have a Thunderbolt-equipped interface now that thinking like, okay, this will sort of future-proof me. So when I do get a new computer, I'll connect via Thunderbolt. Maybe that'll last me another eight years like this computer. I mean, this computer's been phenomenal. I cannot say enough about it. It's just starting to show its age a little bit. Well, so what interface are you running? Uh, so actually, I'm running the brand new Motu 16A, which was a like crapshoot after trying a Symphony again, um, and the fan was too much for me. The Avid, um, I had the SSL uh, Alpha Link for quite a while, and that was great. Just you know, getting older, um, and it was connected via Maddie. There's not a real elegant Maddie to Thunderbolt situation without sort of an external uh, PCI enclosure. So I was trying to think of, okay, I want to upgrade my converters, but I want something that will easily interface with something that doesn't have PCI cards. Should I go with a trash can or an iMac or something like that? Um, so I, and I tried the Apollo stuff that was super unhappy connected via firewire 800 with my lap with my uh tower it would crap out and it lose all of the ua plugins <laughs> yeah see i went through that but i so i ended up buying a separate 800 card <clears throat> uh-huh for the pci card because my i came to discover that my tower wasn't actually the 800 connections were running at 400 Interesting. And so I, I bought a card and that solved everything. Huh. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> Too late, but... Too late, but... Right. Uh, yeah, so I, my one of the pro audio guys here in town got me one of these. The, the Motus had just come out, and I think it was last fall at AES. 
where they showed them. And it's the same chips as the Symphony. Now, I know that anybody can buy these chips, and the chip is not what makes a converter great. That's the analog stage. But I thought, well, what the hell? I'm going to try it. So he got one in, and I tried it, and A-beat it with the Symphony, with the Apollo, uh, and, and, and the Motu, and they all sound great. You know, converter technology these days is such that I'm still making records on 192s in a lot of studios. That's old stuff at this point. Nobody's buying a record and going, boy, their conversion could have been better. True. Um, it's, it's purely about serving ourselves, and these converters sound great. And it's stable, and right now it's hooked up via USB, and it works perfectly. And I'm ready for Thunderbolt. So, so did you sell the 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 native system in the I/O? Yeah, so I sold the I/O and the card, um, and kept the HD license because people wanted just the card or just the I/O to expand their rig. Oh, so you've um, got the built-in surround capability? Yeah, exactly. Mm, yeah. See, I'm just running the the plain Jane software. Okay. With an Apollo. Yeah, and I needed. For me, the HD software is far more important than their hardware. Um, for the surround capability, uh, number of tracks, because a lot of the stuff I do is 100-plus tracks, mm -hmm. and at 96K, can't do that on regular. Um, something else in there that I really... The, oh, just the like input monitoring on a per-track basis is different in HD than it is in regular native... And I'm just so used to that because every room I'm in is an HD rig. You know, and in a perfect world, I would have gotten a Burl mothership. <laughs> but but that's eleven and a half grand for sixteen channels of I.O. That's a divorce. <laughs> that's a divorce. <laughs> yeah. Does that come with a divorce lawyer? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, so a friend of mine has a big mothership rig, so I can go there and use his. Very cool. Well, Don, thank you for, for taking the time to be on the show. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, man. I'm honored. Great yeah. to meet you. And uh, mm -hmm. I hope to meet you in person at some point. Take cool. care. And, uh, Thanks, Matt. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. We'll chat with you later. Okay. See ya. All right. Don Gunn. Another good interview down. Number 20. Heading towards 25. Hey, make sure you get up on uh, Facebook. We're beyond 1,000 likes now, of course. Be great to get to 2,000. Yeah. That's what we're shooting for next. And uh, tell your friends, hey, if you're in a recording school, tell all your students, your fellow students, and uh, spread the word. And we're on, we're on Instagram, of course, as you know, or maybe you don't. And uh, Twitter, of course, YouTube channel, all that stuff. All right. We'll see you next week. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.